This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. In the House bill, in the HEROES Act, there was $69 billion to cover nutrition assistance and utility assistance so that someone doesn't go hungry or have their power shut off because of this pandemic. House had $69 billion. The Senate, in its proposal, had $250,000. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by PLU and Libro FM. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. We have a return guest today. It's been a while since we had a conversation with Congressman Kilmer. Uh, he was our guest back on episode 29, if you want to go back and listen to that. Uh, I listened to it today, and it's an interesting time capsule because in 2018, we were still kind of getting uh, our head around what the Trump administration was, and the Democrats were still in the minority in the House, and there's been some changes since then, and we're having this conversation for full disclosure uh, on September, no, it's not September, October 28th. Uh, on Wednesday evening, and this episode is going to come out the day before the election. And so we're going to talk through uh, the most likely scenario and then also the like calamitous, tragic scenario uh, for the next couple of years. And so, Congressman Kilmer, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. A lot of prayer between now and the time this podcast hits, I think. <laughs> A lot I, of work. I didn't intend on having you prognosticate, but like since we're kind of there right now, what are your thinkings about how things are going to go next week? I learned in 2016 that I um, stink at prognostication, so I'm I'm very reticent to do that. Uh, I, you know, I'm a work for the best uh, kind of guy, so we've been um, every day uh, making calls uh, all over the place, trying to help candidates all over the place in hopes of uh, of seeing that good outcome. I know that seemed like a duck right off the right off the bat, but I you oh, know, it was it was. I, but it's, my that's wife fine. asked that's me fine. last night what I thought was going to happen, and I said. I actually think it might be okay, but I'm afraid to say those words out loud because <laughs> I don't want to jinx anything. <laughs> well, I'll give my 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 numbers that I've been kind of thinking about. Uh, so either the president is going to lose the popular vote by much more than he lost before and then squeeze out an inside straight to win the Electoral College. Or uh, it's going to be a blowout. And so there are some people talking about like 400 Electoral College votes. Like, I don't know about that. Like people are talking about Texas and Georgia. I don't know about that, but I think that it's either Trump by a little bit or Biden by a lot. And we'll talk through both of those scenarios uh, okay. today for the audience. Um, f for you, you're fairly likely to waltz to re-election. And one of the aspects of Congress that my students and I were talking about this week is the, the fact that basically everybody loves their own representative and that members get reelected at like a 90 plus percent rate, but then everybody hates Congress. What does that say about like the civic mood in the country? What does that say to you about like what voters are thinking? Like, why do you think that's the, the way the land is right now? It's a great question. You know, the, 
there are undeniably institutional challenges with Congress. I mean, I'm I'm very conscious, as I've shared with you before, that I'm according uh, part of an institution that, according to recent polling, is institution wide uh, less popular than headless colonoscopies and the band Nickelback. And you know, you have a good sense of why that is so. You've seen government shutdowns. You've seen, you know, uh, the inability to pass a COVID package. Uh, you know, and a long litany of things that um, contribute to people's dissatisfaction. Uh, at the same time, I think, by and large, voters get to see up close and personally the work that members do on behalf of their constituents. Um, you know, we have tried, uh, whether I've been in the majority or in the minority, to be available and accessible and accountable to uh, the folks I represent. And I think that um, often contributes to that disconnect between how people think about their representative versus how they think about Congress writ large. That makes sense. So you've actually been, so like I mentioned in the opening, the last time we spoke, uh, the Democrats were in the minority in the House, and you've now been in the majority since the new Congress kind of came together in early 2019. Yeah. How have the last couple of years been for you being in the majority for the first time in a while? Better. Um, I, you know, I, I strongly prefer the majority in part because, you know, your capacity to um, try to advance uh, your priorities to try to advance your values is so much greater in, in the majority. Um, you know, when I was in the minority, I described it as sort of playing hockey against the world's toughest defense. You know, you're, you're, you're taking as many shots on goal as you can to get pucks into the net on behalf of your constituents, but it's just really hard from, uh, you know, it's already just by virtue of our system of government, it's hard to get pucks into the net. It is really hard when you're in the minority and, uh, you know, it's still, you, you, you still do everything you can and take as many shots from as many angles as you can. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, you have far more opportunity for impact from the majority. I would also say, you know, I know you, you said you wanted to talk about the scenarios if Democrats run the table. It was really cool to vote on a bunch of bills that were really consistent with my values, uh, mm -hmm. to, to, you know, to work on issues that I think are fundamental, uh, to who we are as Americans and the work we have to do. And that is a big contrast to the experiences I had in, in the minority. I mean, listen, I was in the minority for six years. I cannot tell you how many moments of silence we had on the floor of the U.S. House after mass shootings in this country. Uh, I can tell you during those six years that I was in the minority how many moments of action we had. We had zero. And that changed uh, in the majority. Uh, you know, my first term in Congress... Uh, in the minority, I was on the science committee, and we literally had a hearing on the myth of climate change in the science committee. And so, you you know, that is fundamentally different in the majority uh, in that you see a legislative um, agenda that's far more consistent with my values. I wonder about some of the legislation that you voted on and has passed the House yeah. and then kind of languished in the Senate. So one of the things that like I think about a lot is that because the U.S. has this bicameral structure yeah. and because right now the houses are divided, there's a lot of like really good legislation that the House has passed, like financial relief for the COVID virus yeah. uh, that basically is languishing on the Senate. Um, for the benefit of the audience, because I think there's a lot of folks out there who only follow politics passively and they're like, they're not doing anything. They're not doing anything. Uh, what are some of the bills that you've passed out of the House that are just languishing on McConnell's desk right now? So maybe let's I, I'm going to set aside the COVID conversation because, you know, we can spend 20 minutes just talking about COVID. 
Sure. When you're in the, um, every bill gets a number. And when you're in the majority, the first nine bills, HR one through nine, are set up for the majority party to advance its priorities. And I actually think it's a pretty amazing articulation of sort of the values of the Democratic Party. So HR one is a bill called the For the People Act. It's a big democracy reform bill. This focuses on reducing the role of money in politics, um, on ethics reforms, not just of the legislative branch, but of the executive branch too. Uh, it deals with the issue of partisan gerrymandering. So voters are choosing their elected officials rather than elected officials choosing their voters. Um, and it predominantly focuses on campaign finance reform. Uh, I'm a sponsor of that bill. That bill has passed the House, to your point, uh, sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk in the Senate. HR 2 is a big infrastructure bill, a bill called the Moving Forward Act. Uh, for those of your listener, listeners on the I-5 corridor, um, you will be conscious of the fact that, you know, oftentimes the speed limit signs are only there for nostalgic purposes, you know, and so there is clear need for an infrastructure package, not just roads and bridges, but um, uh, things like affordable housing investment, uh, school construction, broadband. I think one of the things we learned over this pandemic is access to the internet is not just about whether you can watch the Borat movie. Um, it's, you know, can your kids keep learning if school has moved, moved virtual and, uh, can you keep operating your business if, you know, if, if your storefront shut down? And for a whole lot of the people I represent, the answer to that is no, they can't. And so we passed a bill that was a big one and a half trillion dollar infrastructure package to put people to work now and to lay the foundation for economic growth over the long haul. Uh, I supported that bill. That bill passed the House, sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk in the Senate. H.R. 3 is a bill to lower the cost of prescription drugs. And I... Uh, you know, I, I cannot tell you the number of conversations I've had with people over the years who are having to skip doses or cut their pills um, or choose between food and medication, uh, you know, and that's awful. And so we passed a bill uh, that is sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk in the Senate uh, to address that. H.R. 4 is a new Voting Rights Act to reverse the damage done by the Shelby County versus Holder decision and remove the barriers to the ballot box that still uh, exist in our country. Um, we passed that bill with John Lewis presiding in the Speaker's chair. Um, I'm a sponsor of that bill. That bill passed the House and sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk in the Senate. H.R. Uh, 5 is a bill called the Equality Act, which does something that we've already done here in the state of Washington. Uh, it uh, extends non-discrimination protections in matters of housing or employment or, frankly, a whole bunch of other things, uh, protections uh, to the LGBTQ communities to say that someone can't face discrimination based on who they are or who they love. I'm a sponsor of that bill. That bill has passed the House, sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk in the Senate. H.R. Uh, 6 is uh, the Dream and Promise Act, so that um, young people uh, who've made this country their home, who are Americans in every way but on paper, um, aren't living in fear of deportation. I'm a sponsor of that bill, passed the House, sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk in the Senate. I only have three more. Uh, Paycheck Fairness Act um, embraces a pretty simple ethic, equal pay for equal work. Um, you know, in our country, an African-American woman is paid 66 cents on the dollar compared to a white man. And that is wrong. And the Paycheck Fairness Act tries to address that. I'm a sponsor of that bill. That bill has passed the House, sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk in the Senate. H.R. 8 uh, would be uh, universal background checks for the purchase of a gun. Um, I'm a sponsor of that. That bill passed the House, sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk. And then finally, H.R. 9 is a bill called Climate Action Now, which would have the United States re-enter the Paris Climate Agreement and basically sign on to um, significant goals related to uh, emission reductions. 
I'm a sponsor of that bill. That bill has passed the House sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk in the Senate. That's a pretty good, that, you know, sort of HR one through nine. Not only is that a pretty good articulation of sort of democratic values and my values, it's a pretty good roadmap for the first hundred days. If uh, in your scenario, uh, Democrats run the table, I think what you will see is COVID, uh, COVID, 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 uh, you know, trying to both deal with the public health crisis and the economic crisis. I think you'll see those bills uh, advance to uh, try to extend rights and undo some of the damage that's been done uh, by the Trump administration. I think you'll also see uh, another bill that wasn't one of HR 1 through 9, but it was a very important bill, and that was the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I think all of those bills um, are bills that if uh, in the scenario where Democrats run the table, uh, you could see past the House and not sit on Mitch McConnell's desk, but hopefully see some progress in the Senate as well. I think one of the frustration that is just permeating in like political activism on the left right now is, is that, so I'm a wonk and like I follow this, like I think far more than the average Joe. I only think I knew about four or five of those bills. Yeah. I'm wondering why are Democrats in the House not screaming more from the rafters about the legislation they've already passed and that the Senate is refusing to take action on? Like, I, I feel like I, I feel like the critique that is coming from citizens is, is that Congress isn't doing anything. The Democrats aren't doing anything. And like, I just if, if I was a communicator for the Democratic Party, yeah. I would be screaming from the rafters. We've done. We've done. We've done. They've obstructed. And like, I feel like that case hasn't been made to the people. Um, it, it's a it's a good point. And there has been, you know, there's certainly been uh, effort in that regard. You know, when I uh, visit, when I do town hall meetings, when I do visits with uh, with community groups, I will often walk through that HR one through nine um, because I think it's an, it's important to understand here's what we're trying to get done. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and you've seen in Washington, D.C. press conferences to say, you know, here's a litany of legislation that, that uh, hasn't passed. You know, at some point, you know, particularly in this ad administration, that's just not a shiny thing for the press to cover. Um, and I think that's part of the reason it hasn't gotten the attention that it deserves. But you're right. I mean, that I, I feel when I walk through that legislation, there's a whole bunch of other things that we've been able to pass Um that I'm really proud of, but that are languishing in uh, Mitch McConnell's Senate. Uh, you know, I do think that the American people need to know that. Yeah. Well, and it's it's essential. So it, it, we'll talk through scenarios later on. Yeah. But traditionally, what happens is is that if a president takes power and controls both houses of Congress, as we're hoping Joe Biden's going to have. Yeah. They're only going to have that for like two years. Mm -hmm. And so Barack Obama had that pass Affordable Care Act lost his majority in Congress, yada, yada, yada. Donald Trump had that passed giant tax cuts that plunged us into debt and then lost the majority back to the House to you all. You're only going to have a two-year window to try to push those things through. Uh, are, is there the same level of commitment, in your opinion, in the U.S. Senate among the Democratic caucus about those same bills? I think so, yeah. Uh, and, and then some, frankly. I mean, it, I mentioned, for example, the, the, the Dream and Promise Act. You know, I think that there's an interest in doing far more on uh, issues related to immigration reform than just the Dream and Promise Act. I mentioned the bill focused on prescription drugs. I think there's an interest in doing far more related to reducing healthcare costs than just HR3. So um, you're right though, uh, time goes very quickly. 
And uh, this, hopefully we'll see a new administration. Um, the administration will have to be opportunistic and um, they'll have to work closely with uh, the legislative branch to try to get as much done as quickly as, as we can. So since I relocated, my audience has shifted for some kind of obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, folks who are listening may not may not be your constituents. Yeah. And so could you just lay out for the audience, uh, what is the geographic territory of the six that you represent? Yeah, I represent about 70% of the city of Tacoma and then west, uh, the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State and the Kitsap Peninsula. Um, it goes from Tacoma to the northwestern tip of the continental United States, uh, down to uh, Grace Harbor County, um, you know, Ocean Shores, Aberdeen, where uh, for those listening someplace else, uh, you know, where Kurt Cobain uh, uh, lived and performed. Um, uh, it's a, a district that's very diverse. It's got 11 Native American tribes uh, in, in the district. Um, We've got rural uh, counties. Um, we have three of the six counties I represent voted for Donald Trump. Uh, and then we've got, you know, more uh, progressive bastions uh, in in uh, in Jefferson County on Bainbridge Island and in Tacoma. Mm -hmm. I'm actually glad you mentioned that. So this election, you faced a challenge from the left from Rebecca Parson. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I know that you're not an ideologue and don't want to talk ideology too much, but I think it's for the benefit of the audience. I'm going to throw labels around that aren't useful, but like are framing devices. So I'm going to classify Becca, sorry, Rebecca, as a progressive populist. Okay. Uh, for the benefit of the audience and folks who don't know your politics, how would you classify yourself and your like worldview about things in Washington, D.C. and issues? Yeah, I'm a progressive who wants to get things done. And, you know, if you look at the district I represent, you know, frankly, the the um, vast majority of the folks I represent actually don't really give a lick about whether we go more to the left or more to the right. They just want to stop moving mm -hmm. backwards. And, uh, you know, so a lot of the work that I've done has been really in the spirit of just trying to get problem solved for the folks I represent. Yeah, I think of you as a problem solver and also just in our conversations we've had on the air in my classroom and everywhere else, like in, back in D.C., you're somebody who actually believes in like the importance of government and that like there's a role for government to be a problem solver and to do things and that far too often government doesn't doesn't do anything or doesn't do what you want it to do and doesn't do what people need. And so I've I've heard you repeatedly share that frustration. So that label of problem solver kind of resonates. and I nod my head to that. Um, let's talk through scenarios. Let's imagine that you and I both wake up. It's Wednesday of next week. Mm -hmm. uh, you turn on the TV and you see that through some sort of miracle in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, Arizona, Michigan, uh, like we maybe Nevada flips the wrong way because it's been trending blue. Uh, all that's unlikely. North Carolina, that somehow Donald Trump is reelected to be president of the United States. Ugh. Like saying that stresses me out. Yeah. Uh, that day, what is on your agenda around oversight of the executive branch? Yeah. Well, you know, particularly in a, uh, I mean, you saw I'm, I'm glad you asked about oversight in particular, because, you know, for the first two years of the Trump administration, you really didn't see uh, that uh, that constitutional element of the legislative branch even happen. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, my, my sense is 
you know, particularly if the House is in Democratic hands and the Senate is in Democratic hands, you're going to see a far more aggressive effort to rein in some of the abuse that you've seen under the Trump administration. And you can really run agency by agency and identify that, whether we're talking about the Department of Ed or Lord knows if we're talking about the Department of Homeland Security and the fact that we've got hundreds of kids who are separated by their uh, from their families at the southern border um, that uh, that this administration has basically lost uh, the ability to connect them to their families. You're going to see a very aggressive effort at, at uh, oversight. I think it goes a step further than that, though, Nate, because um, you saw uh, just a few weeks ago the broad brushstrokes of, I think, what, what would uh, almost look like the Watergate reforms after Watergate. Oh, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. I'm so glad you're bringing this up. Okay, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I mean, it was largely a recognition that there was abuses that have happened under this president that people hadn't even thought were possible. And just mm -hmm. like after Watergate, all of a sudden you said, well, wow, we didn't see that coming. So this is going to require a whole new set of reforms from an ethics standpoint, from an oversight standpoint, um, to try to prevent the abuse of power. And, uh, you know, so you already see work happening on sort of the 2020 version of Watergate reforms. I've been saying to my students and been saying kind of privately that what we're seeing happen under the Trump administration is an intentional rollback of a lot of established norms that have been put in place. And one of the things that I think about constantly is how how much of our system of government is a social, social contract. And like, we don't, we don't, well, the founders did not, and lawmakers since the founders have not foreseen somebody who would come in and just break all of the norms with no consequence. And so that's a question I have for you is like, what are some of the norms and some of the like particular reforms that you think need to be either codified into law or reinforced or put back into place? Because like you mentioned Watergate, like to me, when I think about Watergate, I think about the bribery and campaign finance. Yeah. And I'm going to argue with Citizens United that our campaign finance system today is actually more corrupt than it was during Watergate. Yeah. And so when it comes to like in, like in, when it comes to campaign finance reforms and like ethics reforms, uh, what's on your agenda going forward? HR one provides a pretty good role uh, uh, roadmap that we need to do even more than what's in HR one. HR one um, uh, has a pretty robust uh, plan around campaign finance reform uh, to allow for citizen financed elections, basically uh, trying to get the special interests and the big dollars out of our system. Um, and have a system of, of match funding, uh, uh, which I'm supportive of. It, uh, it enhances disclosure requirements so that if, you know, as we see all these ads, you're lucky that you're overseas and you don't have to see as much as, 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 as we're <laughs> seeing. Um, you know, that the people have to put their name on it. So you know who's actually trying to influence our elections. And by the way, there's a part of HR1 is a bill that I introduced that would say, um, that includes uh, political expenditures on, on social media, because you know right now there are no disclosure requirements and that's problematic. Mm -hmm. One, because we've seen more and more political spending go into the online arena. Uh, and two, we know for those who read the Mueller report that um, foreign entities actually spent money trying to influence elections over social media. What um, about some of the things with like White House appointments? So I, right. I, I, 
So, so when President Kennedy appointed his brother-in-law to be uh, attorney general, we passed a law saying afterwards, like, yeah, we can't do that. Yeah. The fact that Jared Kushner and Ivanka are like drawing salaries in the White House, is that something, Duck is shaking his head. Is that something that you would address legislatively as well? I think there's a whole bunch of work to happen focused on not not using government for your own personal gain, uh, but rather for the public interest. You know, you just saw an article in the Washington Post come out saying that literally this president has directed millions of millions and millions of dollars to his own enterprises um, as president. You know, that that should not be allowed. Um, there should be transparency when someone runs for president. So part of H.R. 1 was requiring that any candidate for the highest office in the land release their tax tax returns so that we know decisions are being made in the public interest, not in someone's personal financial interest. Um, you know, trying to have more sort of guardrails around uh, ethics and uh, around the use of, of, of someone's office. Um, you know, but I, I would say that needs to extend even beyond sort of the emoluments discussions that, that we've had, but also look at things we never would have contemplated, like who would have thought that the Republican National Convention would be held um, on the White House lawn, right? Like that is a, a, an extraordinary abuse of 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 power. Um, uh, you know, looking at uh, the use of presidential pardons, looking at you know, and 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 some of this gets under you know because you're a, a, a civics and government teacher. You know, some of this is trying to just get back to some of the intent of the founders and and looking at the legislative branch and its use of article one authorities as well you know congress has has um largely stepped back from many of those things and i think it needs to retain some of those authorities so for example and this gets less at at ethics and more at although some of it does wrap up in ethics you know if you look at some of what the president's done in this escalating trade war and how he's levied tariffs without any sort of regard for uh, whether Congress is on board with that. I think that is a problem and Congress needs to rein in that authority. And frankly, I would say that even if Joe Biden gets elected, Congress needs to rein in the authority of sure. the executive. Similarly, uh, you know, if you look at right now, uh, Congress has largely handed over the power of the purse to the executive branch to make all decisions about where spending goes. Um, you know, those decisions are being made by, you know, very, uh, uh, you know, many um, well-intentioned people, but who don't really know my congressional district and the needs of my congressional district because they're 3,000 miles away in a marble building. And so I think you will see an active discussion about the balance of power has shifted far far too much to the executive branch. And I think regardless of the outcome of this election, you may see some effort to restore some of those authorities to uh, to the legislative branch. Okay, we'll take a break here. Uh, but before we take a break, I wanna put a plug in for putting some teeth to the Hatch Act. Yeah. Uh, so the, ha the Hatch Act is a law for listeners that basically forbids government employees and bureaucrats from using their position to advocate politically. Uh, it's the law that Kellyanne Conway and a lot of the Trump stooges uh, flaunt constantly. And one of the reasons why they do is there's like no prescribed like punishments for it. And like, I would just love to see that reform put in place. Agreed. All right, so we'll be back. This is Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art Tacoma. Words mean things. That's what Pacific Lutheran University challenges me and you to think about in our everyday speech. 
When I speak to you or a guest over the podcast, the words I choose have impact, either positive or negative. Words have history, and when we choose to use them, we have to own their meaning and their effect on the people listening. My language, my choice. PLU is asking us to go deep on words like anti-racist or decolonize, and to think about what those words truly mean. Then, once you understand them, let's talk about how you can put words into action. What can you do to live up to the word anti-racist? How can you decolonize your entertainment or even how you introduce yourself? These are big questions. To get ideas on how to answer them and to find questions about other important words, visit plu.edu slash words mean things to learn more. My sincere thanks to Pacific Lutheran University for sponsoring Channel 253 and for doing exactly what universities should be doing right now with this campaign. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show today and giving us a listen. Uh, the Nerd Farmer podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Channel 253 is a network of podcasts giving you stories and perspectives and points of view you won't hear elsewhere. We are a labor of love in the Tacoma community and would love to have your support. If you like what you're hearing on this show and want to hear other th- other stories and other episodes like this, if you like what you're hearing on Citizen Tacoma, if you like what you're hearing, hearing on We Are Tacoma, I'm going to look you square in the windows to your soul and say to you, if you like what you're listening to, it's worth paying for. Go to channel253.com slash membership. It is $4 a month and $40 a year. And your membership makes this labor of love possible. Speaking of labors of love, uh, the next Nerd Farm Reads book club, you all voted. We're going to we're going to read. I said, listen to I'm going to listen to you're going to read uh, Cast by Isabel Wilkinson. Uh, it is a story about race in America. And so if you want to read Cast with us, pick it up from Libro FM or from King's Books. Uh, if you go to Libro FM, use the promo code Tacoma and you will get two free books with the, or you'll get a two for one offer for your first month. Uh, if you want an old fashioned book, go to King's Books and I'll be joined in studio for that episode with, by Alan Belton, the president of PLU, uh, Aaron Jones, former candidate for OSPI and my perennial book homie, Hallie Kanigi. All right. So Congressman Kilmer, welcome back. Thanks. We talked through the, what happens if Trump wins scenario that you and I both think is bad for the democracy and the republic and for everything, everything, everything. I, I, I want to talk for the rest of the conversation about what happens if Joe Biden wins. Um, one of the things you brought up earlier, earlier on in the episode is the COVID relief bill. And so we know that like the House passed a relief bill months ago. Yeah, May. That is just languishing. Yeah, passed it in May. And it's languishing in the Senate like all the other bills you talked about. But I don't think that most Americans and certainly not well, screw Americans, I guess. My, most listeners to this podcast, at least, don't know like what's in that bill. Can you talk about what the Senate is preventing Americans from getting? What kind of relief are they missing out on? Yeah. Um, there are three big components of it. And, and I'll, I'll mention uh, the House passed a bill called the HEROES Act in May. We passed a bill again uh, earlier in October uh, that was seen as a potential compromise that, again, the Senate has largely ignored. There's been three big pieces of this COVID response uh, discussion. One is we got to defeat this virus. And, and that requires testing and tracing and treatment. 
uh, and a national strategy for defeating this virus. And it's unfortunately been one of the areas of disagreement with the administration. They have largely outsourced uh, the COVID response to states and lo localities. And as a consequence, we don't have the type of coordinated national response that if you look at the countries that have gotten a handle on this, uh, that they have had. Um, we are doing nowhere near the testing uh, that public health experts say that we need. And so one big component of this is trying to crush this virus. The, you know, our ability to get kids back to school, businesses reopen and you know, get back to uh, at least life in, in some respect that we knew it before is very limited while we have uh, uh, this virus continuing to spread. Um, the second, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 I'm just, I'm nodding to what you're saying yeah. about the lack of like action from government. So like here in UAE, this is the first country that has administered more tests than there are people in the country. Yeah. And so as part of our reopening, I literally have to get tested every two weeks. And if we have positive tests, then like school is closed. Yeah. Uh, I've posted multiple times about like how much testing is happening here. And people are like, well, how are they getting all these tests? Or how is it? like the situation in the United States is not a eventuality. It's a policy choice by the administration. It is. And, and yeah. public health experts say that nationwide we should be uh, averaging about 5 million tests per day. Mm -hmm. We're under 20% of that uh, right now. We're, we're not even to a million tests a day as a nation. And just for folks who are not following this very closely, the rationale behind this is you do the testing so you can find out who has the virus so that those folks can isolate. Then you do contact tracing to find out who the people who have the virus have been in touch with so those people can be tested and, and quarantined until they get the green light and told you're, you're COVID negative. And you know, that's basically the way that countries have gotten a handle on this. And the Trump administration has been reticent to, to, to do that. Uh, even after the House passed the HEROES Act, they said, well, well, we'll take the money, but we don't want to have the, we don't want to commit to the strategy that you laid out. So that's one of the things. We're not going to provide a, a slush fund to the Trump administration. We want to make sure that the dollars get used as intended. So that's one of the things that's holding up the deal. The second piece of this, you know, so one is protecting lives. Two is protecting livelihoods. I have to tell you, this is perhaps the most painful part of this because people are really hurting. Um, you know, I, I made a choice a, a, a few months ago that if someone reached out to our office, having lost their job or lost their business because of this pandemic, I'm not sending them a form letter, I'm calling them. And I'm just, you know, the pain is so palpable when you talk to someone who's had the rug pulled out from under them. I talked to a woman sure. and, and you know, and I, I say this because the HEROES Act, and I'll talk about some of the components of it. When we passed that out of the House, Mitch McConnell's response, and he, he said this, he said, well, let's just take a pause. So I talked to a woman in Port Angeles a couple of weeks ago, and she said, I have worked my entire life. And she said, until March, she said, I lost my job in March. And she said, I cannot find a job. And she said, I have, she said, I used to, 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 to run the food drive for my employer. And she said, for the first time in my life, I had to go to a food bank because I couldn't feed my kids. And she's, you know, and the HEROES Act includes things like enhanced unemployment assistance, where the federal government actually helps provide a little bit additional money, in part because there are far more job seekers right now than there are jobs to be had. Um, so, it, so that unemployment will look a little bit closer to wage replacement. It includes uh, uh, health coverage for folks who've, who've, uh, who've lost their job so that they don't lose their health care. 
Uh, it includes housing assistance so that um, not just protection from eviction, but also actually housing assistance so that rental assistance so that someone isn't losing their housing for something that's not their fault and nutrition assistance because we've seen record demand at our food banks. And I just want to give you a sense of why this has been hard to get a deal. In the House bill, in the HEROES Act, there was $69 billion to cover nutrition assistance and utility assistance so that someone doesn't go hungry or have their power shut off because of this pandemic. House had $69 billion. The Senate, in its proposal, had $250,000. $250,000 does not even meet the need of Pierce County, Washington, let alone the entire country. And so as much as I have a sense of urgency about getting to an agreement, like we're not gonna take a deal that provides $250,000 to meet the nutrition needs of the American people. And you know, even yesterday, uh, which as your listeners listened to this a week ago, um, you know, the Trump administration is continuing to challenge in court because they're trying to pull uh, nutrition benefits away from low-income Americans, even in the middle of a pandemic. So we have, what we have here is a difference in values. Sure. The other component of trying to protect livelihoods is, you know, I talked to a small business owner in Tacoma a few weeks ago, you know, and he, he broke down. He said, it took me 30 years to build my business. And he said, I wanted to pass it on to my kids. And he said, I cannot make it. He said, I'm doing everything. I can. He's like, I, I, I cannot pay these bills and I cannot hang on. You know, his bills did not pause while Mitch McConnell was pausing. And, you know, and I, I, I literally, I've talked to dozens of people who are in that circumstance. And the HEROES Act in, includes help for small businesses, another round of the Paycheck Protection Program, and some reforms to it so that some of the smallest businesses and minority-owned businesses aren't left behind. Um, specific support to some sectors that have been particularly hard hit, like the restaurant sector, because even if tomorrow Jay Inslee said, everything's reopened, we know that the occupancy at restaurants will be lower uh, because right. people don't feel comfortable. Same thing with live uh, live uh, venues. Um, you know, you, pe people aren't going and seeing shows right now um, because they don't want to be sitting shoulder to shoulder with someone who might make them sick. And so there was specific assistance um, uh, toward that end as well. So that's in the HEROES Act. And then the third component is trying to protect the life of the American democracy. Um, and that means providing election assistance, uh, you know, at a time where more and more people have to vote by mail, the bill that we passed in May provided assistance to states to enable uh, 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 a transition to, to vote by mail and the enabling uh, election departments to do that safely, to offer longer periods of, of early voting. Um, and then also funding for the Postal Service, because we've seen, uh, uh, in my view, an intentional attack on the Postal Service by this administration. So those were the three components of the bill. And, you know, and, and I'll just mention one other quick thing, because this gets into the discussion around livelihoods as well. The one of the one of the pieces of pushback by the president is this notion, well, we, you know, Democrats want to bail out blue states and 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 lawless cities. You heard him say that in the presidential debate. That is just not true. You know, what the HEROES Act did include was funding for state, local, and tribal governments. Now, why would that be? One, because there has not been a national strategy for dealing with this virus, the responsibility has devolved to state, local, and tribal governments to try to deal with the virus themselves. Two, all of those governmental entities have seen massive 
uh, shortfalls in revenue in part because our country went through a medically induced coma uh, 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 in our economy. So just to lay that out, I, I sat down with a group of community college leaders uh, last week. They have been told to prepare a budget that would cut 15 to 20% of their college budget. You know, that means lost jobs. That means cuts to the ability to offer services to people who've uh, lost their jobs and maybe going back to get retrained. You know, education is part of our way out of this recession. You know, the chair, and you know, this is not just some sort of liberal notion. The chair of the Fed says one of the ways that we will prevent this recession becoming from becoming a prolonged recession or even a depression is to make sure that we don't see a huge slew of, of public sector layoffs as well. There are school districts that are making layoffs. There are community colleges that are making layoffs. And, you know, when the president says this is about bailing out blue states, no one is suggesting that the federal government cover um, shortfalls that existed before anyone had heard of COVID. This is about trying to fill the hole that was created by COVID. And by the way, if you look at the 15 states with the biggest revenue shortfalls, eight of the 15 are red states, not blue states. But secondly, who cares? We're all the United States of America. And, you know, part of the response should be, we should have your back, not you know, well, you're, you're on your own. Yeah. Well, and, and my hope, and I'm just going to put this in your ear, is that like something that tends to happen is, is that when Republicans have control of the branches of government, they cut taxes and they drive up giant, giant deficits. And then when Democrats take power, the Republicans get religion on fiscal issues and budgets. And then Democrats uh, play by the Republicans' rules and try to institute things like paygo and making sure that like spending is paid for I'm wondering, do you have thoughts about like that balance between deficit spending and whatever whatever dangers deficit present? Some folks will say none. Some folks say they're they're a calamity. And like, what needs to happen uh, under a Biden administration? I'm going to give you a largely unsatisfying answer because um, <laughs> no matter what side of uh, of this coin you sit on, I'll probably upset you with my answer. Yeah. Um, I think there's a different set of rules in the midst of a global pandemic. Economists across the political spectrum have said, um, e e even those uh, who believe that the, that the debt is a long-term drag on our economy have said, now is not the time to, to obsess about our debt and deficit. We have to prevent uh, a whole bunch of deaths by getting a handle on this virus, and that takes investments. Uh, and we have to pre prevent a Great Depression. And in fact, the chair of the Fed said, it is a bigger threat uh, if we undershoot the solution uh, than if we overshoot it, that if that if the federal response is not adequate, that it is far more likely we'd see a prolonged recession, and that actually has a bigger hit on our debt mm -hmm. and deficit than if we just made the investments on the front end to try to prevent that. I think over the long haul, we do have to get a handle on our nation's long-term financial obligations, and I say that in part because more and more of my kids' paychecks are gonna go, they, they're in sixth and ninth grade, so they don't have paychecks yet. But when they work, um, more and more of their paychecks is gonna have to go to paying off the credit card bills that our generation has racked up. Um, not to mention the fact that economists say that the, given the size of our debt, that will be a long-term drag on our economic growth. The reality though is, and this is where I defer, I, I, I differ with the Republicans, you know, 
the 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 reality is every kind of nonpartisan group, every think tank, every bipartisan group that's analyzed that problem has concluded the same thing. And that is this problem's too big just to cut your way out of it. It's too big just to tax your way out of it. And it's too big to depend on economic growth as a strategy out of it. The reality is you have to have a comprehensive approach to addressing it. That is going to be a problem that we need to start thinking about. But there is, I think, near unanimity among economists liberal, moderate, or conservative, that right now we need to focus on preventing a Great Depression and crushing this virus and not be obsessed about uh, debt and deficit. Not right now. Okay. The reason why I think debt and deficit matter also is, is that the issue that the Democrats have been beating the Republicans about the head with since 2018 is health care. Yeah. And when if and when President Biden takes the White House, there's going to be a health care legislation, piece of legislation that needs to get passed. Yeah. Uh, this is not the Ezra Klein show, so we're not going to get super wonky into details of health. I want to pose it to you this way. Yeah. Uh, if I made you the czar of American health care, uh, what kind of system would you create? Yeah. Um, well, one, I think we need to have universal affordable health care. Um, you know, we're the greatest country on the planet and you shouldn't go broke when you get sick and you shouldn't get sick because you're broke. Um, Paul Krugman it may, may be better than Ezra Klein on this one. You know, Paul Krugman said there's a lot of ways to get to universal cover coverage. He looked at a variety of models and he pointed to the Dutch system as one of the best in the world. And that is pretty, uh, that, that would be a starting point based on what we have right now. He refers to the Dutch system as Obamacare done right. So, what does that mean? You know, one, it means trying to protect the gains that were made under the Affordable Care Act. I was not in Congress when the Affordable Care Act was passed. I don't think it's a perfect law, but it's undeniably a good thing that tens of millions of Americans have, insur have insurance now and have affordable health care who didn't before. It is undeniably a good thing that people can't be uh, discriminated against by insurance companies because they have a pre-existing condition. And I have two people with pre-existing conditions under my roof, and that is a big priority for me. It is a good thing that young people can stay on their parents' insurance until their 26th birthday. It's a good thing that illnesses above the neck get treated the same as illnesses below the neck, so-called so mental health parity. All of those are components of the Affordable Care Act that, that we need to protect. And that, you know, in my time in Congress, it has been a consistent effort to try to prevent the Republicans from taking those protections away from people. And even now, you see the president um, litigating, uh, you know, they sped through this approval of a court justice because the court's going to be taking up a case on the 10th of November. The But... I am not satisfied with the Affordable Care Act as the status quo. I think we need to build on the success of that. So what does that look like? One, it means um, trying to broaden the coverage so that we get toward universality. There's about two thirds of the uninsured who actually qualify for free coverage, but remain uninsured, um, either because their state hasn't done the Medicaid expansion or because they have had trouble navigating uh, the exchange. There's a bill I'm the co-sponsor of called the Pathway to Universal Coverage Act. You heard, uh, if you watch the presidential debate, you heard Joe Biden speak about this. It's the notion of automatically enrolling someone who qualifies for free health care, automatically enrolling them into a health care plan so that they can have that. I also support uh, the creation of a public option. And there's a variety of, of forms that could take. But they generally involve a, a federal health plan like Medicare that people would be able to um, to purchase, you know, sort of Medicare for all who want it. 
And the value of that would it be that it would create more competition for private insurance companies. It would drive down costs and it would provide an option where private insurance, you know, in those communities where private insurers have, have lost, uh, uh, have, have left the marketplace. Um, all of those are things that we could do right now. Uh, you know, and I assume when you ask the question, it's not, you know, sort of, you know, in, in a magical world, you know, in a world where Democrats uh, control the House, the Senate and the White mm -hmm. House, you know, that is what I just articulated is uh, to a large degree, the Joe Biden plan. Uh, and I think it's something that could pass the House, pass the Senate and get signed by the president. There are some other things that I think we need to do. Um, you know, I represent a district that has a bunch of rural healthcare providers and they're hanging on by a thread, uh, which is problematic, not only because they're the only providers of healthcare in those rural counties, but they're also some of the largest employers. And if they go under, and we've seen a ton of rural hospitals go under, um, that would be a huge problem. Mason General is hanging on by a thread right now. So like my, my, my in-laws family is in Shelton. And so I hear a lot about Mason General and its condition. And so I'm, I'm not in agreement with that part. Yeah. yeah. Grace Harbor Hospital, uh, same thing. Olympic Medical Center, we've been working with. I talked to them uh, earlier this week. You know, the Trump administration made a change in a reimbursement policy. That means that that, uh, that Olympic Medical Center in their Medicare reimbursement, we'll see a cut of $47 million over the next 10 years. $47 million in a county, by the way, that voted for Donald Trump. And so that is a huge problem. Um, you know, so we need to work on that. Frankly, I also think, and I've supported legislation to expand Medicare so that it, uh, it covers uh, vision and hearing and dental. Uh, you know, and I mentioned that HR3 to lower the cost of prescription drugs. All of those things, you know, if you made me, benevolent dictator, those are things I would do immediately. Okay. You've mentioned multiple times the extent to which the current administration is actually sticking it to its voters. Yeah. And we're having this conversation basically the night after that whole, like, people left freezing in Omaha. Like, I, I can't get my head over that. I, I wonder, why do you think it is that the Democratic Party is unable to convert these voters who are literally being spat upon by the administration policy-wise, uh, even, even at this late stage of the Trump administration with the outbreak and with the, and with the, and with the. So I mentioned that three of the six counties I represent voted for Donald Trump. And the common mm -hmm. denominator among them is that they're really hurting economically. And I think part of the job of the Democratic Party and part of my job, you know, I won those three counties and part I won them because one, I show up and I don't write them off. Uh, and two, I try to articulate, here's, here's how we're going to try to make life better. Um, I, I don't accept the status quo. It's very difficult. They, I mean, I grew up in Port Angeles. This is part of the reason I do this work. I, you know, I was in high school right around the time the timber industry took it on the chin. And I saw a bunch of my friends' parents lose their jobs and a bunch of my neighbors lose their jobs. You know, and it altered the trajectory of my life. I went and studied uh, economic development policy and, and, you know, in the end, you know, trying to figure out how do you create economic opportunity for people, regardless of what zip code they live in, has been sort of my motivator in, in, in public service. It is a problem that in a whole lot of the communities I represent, you went from thri thriving communities that exported wood products all over the world uh, to communities that export young people. And that's a problem. And so part of our job, part of my job, you know, and part of the Democratic Party's job is to say, we don't accept that status quo, um, that we're going to fight to make sure that 
no matter what zip code you live in, we're, we're, you're going to have a shot. You know, and, and that means I work on some things that may seem less interesting, you know, uh, to folks in the 253, right? Um, you know, so we're working a bunch on rural broadband and we're working a bunch on, on you know, uh, rural healthcare for Mason General and for Grace Harbor Hospital and for Olympic Medical Center. And um, we're, we're uh, working on, you know, what does Timber 2.0 look like where, you know, maybe it involves, uh, you know, something like uh, cross-laminated timber and innovative wood products that could help build things in urban areas, but pe put people to work in rural areas. Uh, you know, so we're working on all of those sorts of things because uh, uh, those communities deserve representation too, and they're not getting it from Donald Trump. Okay. All right, we're gonna go to listener questions. Uh, and the first one's from John Murphy. Uh, He's wondering, what is your level of confidence in the current leadership of the caucus, uh, particular like Pelosi, Hoyer, and Clyburn? Uh, there's a lot of, so let me explain like the, the kind of background on this. Uh, here in like under 50 Twitter land, there's a lot of consternation about the age of democratic leadership and like out of touchedness. And I'm just wondering, uh, not even what your votes are, but like, do you foresee changes in the caucus leadership? Um. I think one of the good things that happened in recent years is you've seen a broadening of the leadership table, it, you know, and that's a good thing, you know, and, 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 and that is not at all a diss on our current leadership. Uh, it's a commendation of our current leadership to, in that by broadening the leadership table, you're starting to see sort of uh, apprenticing uh, new members, younger members, so that you know, Hakeem Jeffries four years ago was part of the messaging team and now is the chair of the caucus. And, you know, he is someone who's right around my age and I think could very likely be the next Speaker of the House. You see, uh, you know, um, uh, Catherine Clark from Massachusetts become the vice chair of the caucus. You've seen um, more opportunities for people, um, you know, they've created a, a freshman representative to leadership. And so, You've got Colin Allred uh, from Texas with the seat at the table, you know, some really impressive newer members who are sort of apprenticing so that when at some point and listen, you know, even our current leadership has said at some point the page is going to turn. You want to make sure that there's confidence that the that the next chapter is people who've been in the room that have some understanding of, of the process and are ready to uh, ready to roll. And I, I think it is um, it is a testament to that vision of our of our leadership team that they're that they're providing those opportunities uh, for people to, to apprentice and be ready. Uh, next question is from Beth Tack Nine. Uh, one of the things that people in my circles are a flutter about is about the Supreme Court. And if we can talk Constitution for a second, a lot of folks talk about the founders intent, but like the Constitution doesn't designate how many judges there are, are to be on the Supreme Court or anything about the court. It basically leaves the jurisdiction of the court to be decided by Congress in Article 1. So saying all of that, I'm not going to ask about court backing because that question is a tired question. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any thoughts about, about court reform writ large or thoughts about changing the jurisdiction of the federal courts to limit the cases that they can hear and taking some cases like off their plate? It's interesting, you know, obviously there were conversations about this before uh, uh, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, obviously those conversations have picked up, particularly now that you saw the, the Republicans, you know, violate the, you know, the ethic that they set, they set when they didn't fill 
a seat uh, during the Obama administration. I'm very concerned, uh, obviously, about the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett, um, not just because of what it means to healthcare, but what it means to voting rights and worker rights and civil rights and you know uh, the environment. And you just go down the list of things I care about. I think they are put further in jeopardy by a conservative court. I do think that there's value in looking at the issue of judicial reform. Uh, I, I've reached out to some of my friends who, who are uh, uh, law school professors to say, what do you think that ought to look like? And interestingly, and um, perhaps unsurprisingly, you have a lot of whole, you have a whole bunch of different perspectives on what that could look like. You know, there's some who've said, well, what if you kind of impanel judges uh, like they do in, you know, where, where you know, you in essence, on, on a given case, you have a broad uh, uh, mix of judges to choose from, and they are drawn by lot to decide on an individual case. Um, you have others who've said, well, it should just be a matter of, you know, expanding the court because our country has grown. You have others who've taken uh, different perspectives. I do see. I do see this as something that you're going to see some focus on in in uh, in the in the years ahead. Uh, I, I don't know that I. Uh, I don't know that I have a preferred outcome yet. Um, I don't know that I can uh, speculate on what the what the outcome will be yet, but I do think that this is going to be an area you see some focus on in the years ahead. Term limits. Term limits for the court. 18-year term limits for the court. Ginsburg should not have been having to hold on till death on her job. Term limits for the court. It's, did somebody just walk in here and... That was so weird. Anyway, anyway um, so we tend to end the show with a thing called, here, hold this L. But because of where we're having this conversation, we're talking right before the election, but also right before the return of The Mandalorian. Uh, so I assume you watched season one and fell in love with Baby Yoda like the rest of us, yes? Yeah, I, I, I okay. personally want to adopt Baby Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how excited are you for season two? And uh, what in the trailer has really caught your eye? So... Um, I am going to give myself a, a post-election treat. I'm not going to watch a single episode until the election's over because I'm I'm, going to stay, okay. I'm staying focused, Nate. I'm staying focused um, on on making sure we're uh, we're running to the tape uh, on election day. Um, very interested in learning more about the black lightsaber. Uh, I, I know there's a whole uh storyline uh about that mm -hmm. i i confess i'm a huge star wars nerd evidenced by my you know star wars posters and my star wars pez and you know if you've been in my office in washington dc where i have just sort of a star wars shrine in the office <laughs> um uh but I, I i don't read the books i don't read the book yeah. so i i want uh I, I i am so excited about uh mandalorian season two though and i'm perhaps more excited because it means that by the time i watch it that the election will be over <laughs> i just want to say i appreciate for coming on this show and having a conversation let me kind of uh pick your brain and kind of uh giving an opportunity to talk to your constituents uh if people want to follow you on the socials and learn more about the work that's happening uh, out of your office where should they look yeah, on my campaign side, I'm at Derek Kilmer. On my official side, I'm at Rep Derek Kilmer. Um, uh, I'm on Instagram, but I stink at it. Uh, uh, I'm on Facebook. I I do an email newsletter every couple of weeks just to let folks know what's cooking in our nation's capital. If you visit um, kilmer.house.gov, you can sign up uh, for that email newsletter. Um, folks can email me if there's a question we didn't get to, just email through uh, through my website. Um, there's a contact Eric link and uh, 
anybody who reaches out, we, we get back to you. Awesome. When you get back to D.C., please do me a favor and give my love and regards to the 2016 National Teacher of the Year, uh, my girl, Johanna Hayes from Connecticut. Uh, I, I'm so happy and proud of her. Uh, she's one of my favorite things in Congress right now. Uh, Derek, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands. Wear a mask. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. You're, are you in Washington, the good one right now, or the far, far away one right now? I'm in the good one. I'm in the good place. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.